Hello, and welcome to Saddle Up Cinema, a podcast where we chew the fat about a new Western once a week. I'm your host, Neil Anderson, uh, and I'm so happy today to introduce the film The Naked Spur from 1953, directed by Anthony Mann. Uh, This is like a big, juicy steak. I can't wait to dig into this thing. There's so much to talk about. Let's dive into the production history of it, and we'll talk about the film proper after that. So The Naked Spur began its development when the producer William H. Wright acquired the rights to a screenplay titled The Man in the Cavern. So Wright then brought Anthony Mann on, who had established himself at that point as a really prominent figure in the Western genre with things like Winchester 73 and Bend of the River. So Mann and Rolf reworked the script, and I think they brilliantly changed the title to The Naked Spur because The Man in the Cavern is kind of a fucking terrible title and they refined the story as well at that stage. For the lead roles, Jimmy Stewart was cast as Howard Kemp, Janet Leigh was cast as Lena Patch, and Robert Ryan was cast as Ben Vandergroat. Now, from this point forward, I'm just gonna refer to them as Lee, Stewart, and Ryan, and I'll refer to the other two main characters as the soldier and the prospector. And no disrespect to them, the soldier or ex-soldier is played by Ralph Meeker and Millard Mitchell plays the prospector, Jesse Tate. So principal photography for the Naked Spur took place from July to August 1952 in various locations in Colorado, including Durango and Telluride. The filmmakers aimed to capture the rugged and visually striking landscapes of the American West and the director of photography, William C. Mellor, used Technicolor to enhance the film's visual impact and create a vibrant and immersive experience. The cinematographer William C. Mellor was a brilliant American cinematographer born in 1903, and he went to work in the 20s in the film industry. He shot numerous films throughout the 30s, 40s, and 50s. He was well known for his skill in capturing dramatic lighting and creating atmospheric visuals. And he worked closely with Anthony Mann on several of his Western films. He also worked on A Place in the Sun, uh, which is just a gorgeously shot film. The way that Elizabeth Taylor and Montgomery Clift are shot in that movie. It's just stunning. The score was composed by Bronislaw Kaper. And the score is incredibly bombastic in this movie. It plays a large role in the film and it's very active. So he was a Polish-born composer and he immigrated to the United States in the 20s, began working Hollywood in the 30s. He would go on to receive four Academy Award nominations for Best Original Score throughout his career. When The Naked Spur was released in January of 1953, it received positive reviews from critics. It was well received by audiences. It was praised for its taut and suspenseful narrative and the stunning cinematography. The collaboration between Anthony Mann and Jimmy Stewart was particularly celebrated. And uh, we're gonna talk a little bit more about that now because this is part of a cycle of Westerns that Anthony Mann directed starring Jimmy Stewart. Some others from that cycle include Winchester 73, Bend of the River, The Far Country, and The Man from Laramie. So all of these films are worth watching. And this cycle is really considered a highlight of the Western genre. Roger Ebert stated that Anthony Mann's Winchester 73 from a few years earlier was a breakthrough film for Jimmy Stewart and marked the first of five Westerns they were to make together, all among the genre's best. The series was a turning point in the history of the Western. Their films together had a lasting influence. And film historian Jim Kitsis, 
who wrote the book Horizons West, directing the Western from John Ford to Clint Eastwood, wrote that man's Westerns were noted for their extraordinary landscapes, relentless narratives, and radical emotional content, which coalesced in his groundbreaking series of collaborations with Jimmy Stewart. So a lot of praise, right? A lot of superlatives. And I'll be damned if this film doesn't fucking back it up. So the film opens on a gorgeous Ansel Adams-esque tableau of white peaks, a blue sky, and a green landscape. And the first thing I want to note is that this film is from the 50s, and it has a kind of 50s Douglas Sirk subversiveness in the sense that a lot of these brutal emotional exchanges and violent interchanges occur against the backdrop of these almost almost a Disney level of vibrant uh, Technicolor backdrops. And so it's very similar to a kind of Cirquean melodrama where the superficial beauty is giving way to the roiling tempestuousness beneath. So this bucolic landscape is then disturbed by a person. And that element very much reminded me of one of the stories in the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, where we see this kind of gorgeous, untouched landscape then be kind of gradually corrupted by the presence of people moving into it. And the way that they introduce our main character, Jimmy Stewart, here is interesting for two reasons. One, we get this violent whip pan, this quick pan to the right, to a close-up of a naked spur when the title, The Naked Spur, comes onto the screen. And again, just a great kind of impactful title sequence. Love that. Gets me right into the mood of the movie. And then the second thing is that you know, normally when you see a, a shot and you have a character moving either towards or away from the screen, generally the thought is you have the character moving towards the camera and that's going to be more exciting for an audience. You have them moving away, you have them getting smaller, that's not going to be as exciting. So it's interesting that man chooses to have Jimmy Stewart kind of pointed away from us and receding into the background on a series of shots that lead up to our first sequence. It gives us the sense that, one, he's kind of running away from something as much as he might be chasing something down. And then also it kind of gives us the sense that there's some things that we don't know about this character yet. He's going to be a mystery to us. So the first character that Jimmy Stewart encounters is this gold prospector. And he's playing one of these kind of old coot archetypes that you'll see in Westerns. It's a bit of a stock archetype, but I usually find them to be kind of a the colorful presence in these types of movies. And it usually gives some great character actors some ham to, to chew into. And the first thing we notice is that the kind of affable old prospector is a really stark contrast to Jimmy Stewart, who, you know, doesn't trust him, accosts him with his gun right off the bat, and takes a while before he even will put down his gun from facing this old prospector. I think the, the screenplay in the film is incredibly strong. In fact, if you try to write down all the great one-liners in this, you'd wear your hand out. I mean, it has some great lines in it. But there is a kind of obviousness to the way that Stuart and this character interact in laying out the plot that feels expositional in a way that the rest of the movie doesn't. So Stuart lays out that he's looking for a man on a wanted poster that he shows to the prospector. And he gives him a little bit of gold to then help him track this guy down. And here we get another bit of visual storytelling that's going to be repeated in the rest of the movie. When we go from these verdant greens to harsh rocks, it's a progression from you know vegetation to the harsh mineral world. And we get that progression here where they get closer to a rock face and then 
the guy that they're looking for, the Robert Ryan character, starts hitting rocks off the side of the cliff and creating these mini avalanches, stopping them from passing. So they try and regroup, and at this point, the soldier character rolls up, and he's trying to kind of play it off as if he's a, a man of station, perhaps, but Stuart and the prospector knock his gun out of his hand, and they find a note on him. And here there's a nice bit of understated comedy where the note that Stuart reads says that this soldier was discharged with dishonor because they're too morally unstable for the army. And, you know, that's really saying something. One interesting thing here is that Stuart doesn't share that note with the prospector. So already we're seeing the secretive nature of his character highlighted again. So the soldier kind of asks them what's going on and makes it apparent that they are being hunted by this man on the top of the rocks who has the high ground on them just as much as they are hunting him. And this soldier is the first indication that this film is very consciously placing us in the post-Civil War era. And beyond that, it's very clearly placing us in the post-World War II era, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a coming scene. So right off the bat, this character kind of comes across as a Bill Murray in the Ghostbusters. They're at a slight remove from the rest of the movie, and they're almost making jokes at this point at this you know life-or-death situation where these men have already been shot at and had rocks thrown down at them. There's already been great little sprinklings of comedy, especially from the Prospector character, and that kind of persists throughout the rest of the movie with these witty retorts and quick one-liners. These laced barbs are drawn as quickly as any guns are in the movie. And it's not small talk. They are debating why are we doing the things that we are doing? And people are constantly questioning Jimmy Stewart. And one one debate that's drawn out here is the prospector who can't understand why Jimmy Stewart, who has said he's a sheriff, is chasing after this guy at the top of the hill. The prospector's like, well, if there was gold up there, I'd chase it, but... I don't understand this other motive. So at this point, it's hard not to notice the score, which is this kind of acrobatic, incredibly bold piece of bombastic writing. And it's filled with horns as much as it is with strings. And so it really takes a, a large role in driving the movie's action, even more than some Westerns that I've seen. So Jimmy Stewart tries to scale the side of this rock face where the guy he's after is perched on top of. And we kind of get a nice shot of the soldier acting as a surrogate audience member, just kind of sitting around. He almost, you know, you could put a piece of popcorn in his hand and it wouldn't feel out of place. He's just watching, delighted, as Jimmy Stewart tries and fails to climb this mountain. And there's kind of an awkward bit of blocking where Jimmy Stewart is clearly kind of cut to after the stuntman does this actual roll down a rock and you kind of notice that they have to extend a certain shot and then cut to a different shot in order to accommodate this and it feels a bit labored. In contrast, one thing that I praise this movie for is the location photography is incredibly gorgeous, especially considering most of this movie is shot as daylight exteriors and most of the time with trees, you know, in the background, but not around them. And as anybody who's done photography will tell you, that is the hardest condition to make interesting besides maybe just not having enough light in a nighttime shoot. But other than that, 
this is, you know, you're talking about direct overhead light that's not creating a lot of interesting shadows right off the bat. And usually it's going to create a certain washed out tone in the skies and in, you know, the colors. In this case, no, the photography is incredibly vivid the entire time. And I really have to praise uh, William C. Mellor for that. And this idea of trying to scale the cliff to be able to take out the guy that's at the top of it when you're in this rural setting really reminded me of Deliverance. And there's a story beat later on where Jimmy Stewart gets hurt and he's the kind of alpha character in the group before that that is also really reminiscent of Deliverance. So very interesting to see those parallels. And one of these great lines that's filled with subtext comes when the soldier character successfully mounts the cliff and comes up behind the Robert Ryan character who is our uh, bad guy who's done something terrible in the past or did he do it and he needs to be taken back to justice. But what we learn after this guy is kind of taken in is that Jimmy Stewart is not a sheriff. He's after a reward and the soldier is picked up on this but unfortunately the older prospector is a little slow on the uptake and he's just realizing it. So the line that I was referring to comes after this really interesting moment where the soldier sneaks up behind Robert Ryan and gets the jump on him. And instead of Ryan's character being, you know, uh, miffed about it, he kind of laughs and just says, you know, man looks for trouble ahead. And that's when it comes from behind. And that, and that's a great bit of foreshadowing for a moment that's going to come back at the end of the movie. Before Ryan's outlaw character is actually brought into submission though, Janet Lee is introduced as his companion and she jumps out and makes a real introduction, you know, biting the soldier's hand and, you know, jumping right into the fray. She feels like a real live wire right off the bat. And her performance is excellent in the film, except for a couple melodramatic moments at the end. But she has an energy and a modernity that she brings to the performance that I think is really indelible. So at this point, we're really, we really see Stewart's true intentions. He's not a sheriff. He was after the reward money. And we get a great shot of him alone in a frame. And then we cut to all of the rest of the characters in a separate frame. And it's a great way of illustrating that there's a great gulf between him and them. And now we realize that he totally fucked the prospector over as well. You know, he basically was going to give this guy chump change and then take a massive reward for bringing the guy in. You know, he's like a record exec that pays, you know, one of these background singers $10 for a session, and then that album makes a million dollars, right? And here we get a real sense that this is a demythologized West in a lot of ways. The landscape feels mythological, but the characters and their concerns feel far from it. You know, Stuart is revealed to be someone completely after money, and not only that... There's a moment when Janet Lee's character is like, oh, he didn't commit the murder. You know, Robert Ryan's character didn't commit the murder that you're accusing him of. And Stewart just says, I don't care. The reward says he does. You know, the, the, the poster says he does. So it's really kind of chilling. You know, he, he's not after justice, even in a kind of revenge sense, right? You know, the, the kind of basic and slightly atavistic premise of, you have a character that's been wrong and they're going to make it right. It's not even that. So rather, this film is about characters that want 
the mythology, the mythological romantic West and can't have it. They're all outlaws. They're all on the outskirts of society. And in that way, it feels very much like a post-war 1950s film. It's portraying these characters that are on the outside. They want to get into the status quo because in 50s America, you know, if you were behind that white picket fence and in this movie, they portray that as the ranch being able to have that property, then you were in an incredibly beneficial situation. But if you weren't, then there was no place for you in that society or the dialogue around what was happening to you in that society. None of these characters are noble heroes as I said, they're they're searching for some Shangri-La that they can find in this grub stake that they might get, this reward that they might get from bringing in the Robert Ryan character. And one of the things that I love about this movie is the way that every character is playing chess with all of the rest of the characters the whole way through. All of them know that this reward is out there for the Robert Ryan character. So they're all trying to maneuver into the situation where they can bring him in and they would all probably like to bring him alone if they could, meaning eliminating the rest of the people in the group. But none of them wants to make that move right off the bat and they all kind of need each other to make it through this landscape. So that is one of the great joys of this movie is seeing the power dynamic shift back and forth. And the first thing we notice is that Robert Ryan's character is always scheming. He's always contemplating his next move and most of the time you know talking to Janet Lee about what that next move is going to be. We learn a little bit more about the relationship between the two of their characters when we see that she basically came out to you know visit her dad who was an old uh, outlaw character and met Ryan instead who was a friend of her dad. Her dad is actually dead and so her and Ryan kind of strike up this relationship. This movie is like the champion of the pans because there's a great panning shot where Robert Ryan's character plants the seed that, hey, you know, if one of you guys knocked off the rest of you, then that reward money would go a lot further. And man, the director kind of pans around from each face in one single shot and you see all of their reactions and it really plants the seeds of this tension. All of the men in this crew being social outcasts is kind of further highlighted in a scene where they talk about their romantic lives. You know, they're described as a herd of bachelors to each other. And the movie is very conscious of the fact that Janet Lee is the only woman in this group. And it plays out in various ways. Some of them are obvious and some of them less so. But I thought it was quite fascinating, that dynamic between her and the rest of the group. But I couldn't help but think about uh, post-World War II and the growing role of women in the public sphere after that because of their roles in World War II as the men were out fighting. And Janet Lee very much represents to me a post-war woman in the sense of her independence, her fierceness. And you can kind of see the movie playing out a certain anxiety about that character in the way that some of the other characters relate to her ferocity and her independence. The outlaw character starts goading Jimmy Stewart and we really see the extent of his viciousness in this great two shot with him pointing a gun standing up at the outlaw character who's sitting down in front of him and it just feels like he's willing to just murder someone in cold blood and there's no restraint in this character. And, and Jimmy Stewart says, you know, you can die here, you can die at the noose when I take you back in. It's your choice. And I love the line that Ryan says, which is, you know, choosing the way to die. What's the difference? Choosing the way to live. Now that's the hard part.
he starts a running theme of kind of questioning Jimmy Stewart's morality for wanting to profit on someone's life so nakedly. And Jimmy Stewart kind of responds, look, someone was going to bring you in, whether it was me or not. And he says, there's nothing eating at me. But in that great way where the subtext is saying something completely opposite. And this is where we start to see the outlaw character at work, Robert Ryan's character. He plays on every character's weakness. Uh, you know, he plays on Jimmy Stewart's moral misgivings. He plays on the prospector's desire for gold. He plays on everyone's desire for the Janet Lee character. So everyone is a pawn in the chess game for him. One interesting thing to note at this point is the costuming between the outlaw and Jimmy Stewart is quite similar. And this is going to be really important because really this film at the end of the day is about, in my opinion, Jimmy Stewart killing off a part of himself that he needs to in order to grow as a person in order to move on in his life and that you know that part of himself is very much represented by the robert ryan character and so we see that he is just you know the mirror image of him the foil of the jimmy stewart character and i like the way that the costuming highlights that so at this point if if you think the movie's coming to a lull we're going to get an action sequence where the soldier reveals that he's being chased by a group of the Blackfoot Nation tribe. Specifically, this is for kidnapping a native woman. So again, we're seeing a theme in these 40s and 50s American Westerns where there's a kind of recognition of, you know, the reasons for native aggression. You know, I like how they also name a specific tribe here, although the Blackfeet Nation, the Blackfoot Confederacy, was really more a group that was in Montana and Canada, not Colorado, where this film ostensibly takes place and is shot you know, in these beautiful Colorado Rocky Mountains. But good try, Hollywood. <laughs> so the scene starts when the soldier provokes a conflict between the natives and Jimmy Stewart because he's separated from them and is supposed to be running off. But instead, he takes this opportunity to use Jimmy Stewart and the prospector to fight off and kill this group of natives that has been hunting him. There's a couple interesting character beats in this. One, we're going to see Jimmy Stewart's arc from caring about nothing but this gold to caring more about a person, which is Janet Lee. And we see the first inklings of this when the first thing that happens when the natives attack is that he jumps and grabs Janet Lee and drags her to safety. And that's just an interesting note because you see that that's his instinctual gut reaction. But as much as we get this moment of compassion from Stewart's character, we see his dual nature as he, you know, very violently kind of beyond what you need to actually kill someone is seen to be striking this native character in physical combat. And the movie really hones in on just the brutality of it versus everything that's going on around him, which is all violence in itself. Stylistically, what I like about man in what he does in these action sequences is that, you know, contrary to a lot of, you know, Tony Scott kind of mosaic action filmmaking, which I love, by the way, love Tony Scott. But what I like about Anthony Mann is that he shoots his action sequences with these very clear, complete movements where you get to see in a single shot a horse go from vertical to falling down with the man rolling out under them and there's no cuts they're like these complete sentences rather than something that feels so fragmented you can't really get a sense of any weight under it and there's some great stunt work here with a lot of really treacherous horse falls and one awesome stunt where this horse jumps you know just over a log where we've seen a guy's head is totally there in the shot 
right before it. The first time through, I just watched this scene with pleasure. Couldn't even take in any of the stylistic details. I had to go back and rewatch it just because, you know, it, it's just good cinema. And one of the man touches in terms of seeing the ramifications of this violence that I love is Jimmy Stewart kind of surveying this battlefield, these you know natives strewn out in front of him and kind of wondering what he has wrought. And when we learn later that he himself as a Civil War veteran, that he's probably having flashbacks to the horrific, grisly aftermath of battle scenes in the Civil War. And not to bury the lead, one of the ways that the movie raises the stakes is that Jimmy Stewart is shot here, and it's not, not every character is invincible. He doesn't die, but there is a sense of real tension in this action. And again, he was the most dominant character, and now he's weakened in this really interesting way. And as he goes to sleep that night, we see that he has this, these nightmares. And again, this is where Jimmy Stewart cranks up the intensity and kind of leaps away from this tree. And it, again, it felt kind of shocking in the, the rest of this movie's acting stylization to see him just really seeming to, to completely lose it for a second. He imagines that he's seeing his wife in front of him when he sees Janet Lee, his ex-wife. And we realize that what happened to him is that his wife ran off with another man when he went off to war. And again, the, the parallels between him being a you know Civil War character and the fact that this movie is made right after the World War II era are just hard to avoid. And Janet Lee shows a lot of compassion here and their exchange between each other is really uh, kind of beautiful. And we start to see this motif of Beautiful Dreamer, the song being played when their relationship kind of comes to the fore. It's an interesting idea because again, it signifies the fact that, that any beautiful future that they have is in some way the dream that they're trying to attain. And you know, one thing about a dream is that it may not be reality. And there's such a sad and kind of bleakly comic line from the prospector that I just have to note it completely out of context to move on, which is that he says, all my life, that's a long time to look for something. And he's never found gold. And it's just, man, something about that just hit me. And, you know, speaking of one-liners, the next day, Jimmy Stewart wakes up from his nightmares and says, you know, why did you help me, Janet Lee? And she says, I'd have done it for a dog, which is just a great line. As we're talking about wonderful dialogue and a great nod to the kind of four-dimensional chess that everyone's playing, Jimmy Stewart chastises the prospector and says, that's your problem. You only think of one thing at a time. Once the soldier kills me, who do you think he's going to kill next? <laughs> and I love the way that man continually shows us these close-ups of the bound hands of the outlaw character, really giving us the sense of this, you know, kind of caged presence kind of writhing to get out. There's a great scene of tension after this where the outlaw character, unbeknownst to Jimmy Stewart, loosens up his saddle and they start walking along this cliff bank and man shoots it so we constantly see that there's just a couple steps between them and this huge drop off. And as they're walking along, the score kind of builds and the clomp clomp of the horses and we see the saddle loosening up every time. And Robert Ryan is distracting Jimmy Stewart by constantly telling him about this story in his past, giving him his backstory about how his mom died of fever and then his dad got killed in a saloon. And so Robert Ryan started running with this gang of characters and we're getting all of this, but we're also seeing that the saddle is about to break and that it finally does. And 
Ryan knocks Stuart off and, you know, there's only a couple trees between him and the actual edge of the cliff that he stops on. And he kind of knows that Ryan has done this, but there's nothing he can do. He's already taking him in. And it's just a great kind of mini Hitchcockian sequence in the middle of the movie. Uh, Ryan, the outlaw, again, lays out his character when he asks Janet Lee for a back rub, you know, tells, tells her, oh, I, you know, my back's running out again. And she's like, I wonder if you really need this or you just like to be rubbed. And he's like, there's no difference. If I want it, I need it, which is him in a nutshell. And Ryan, the outlaw, brilliantly plays Janet Lee's character off against Jimmy Stewart because he knows that she is starting to feel for him. But instead of kind of taking it personally, he just sees that as another advantage he can play. So he gets her to distract Jimmy Stewart. And then he tries to run out the back of this cave that they jump into. And again, it's a moment where once they get into the rock and away from these greens, that's when the real underbelly of things starts to come out. And they're all pointing guns at each other. And the Robert Ryan character is in the rain, you know, trying to scrape his way out of this hole like a caught animal. And there's a great shot at the end of the movie where he also resembles an animal. And so he really is this kind of caged beast snarling the whole time at everyone. But with a comic snarl, a kind of comic sneer, I should say. So besides the script managing all these characters really well, man uses a lot of great techniques to manage them as well, including having a lot of great action play out in the background or characters walk into the background or open their eyes in the background. And then we might see a close-up of them later on, but it's kind of introducing their relationship to what's happening in the foreground. But before the outlaw character tries to escape and everything goes to shit inside the cave, we get this poignant moment that feels like it could be straight out of a French poetic realism movie from the 30s, a Marcel Carnet movie. We get this little touch where the Jimmy Stewart sets out the tins and all the dishes into the rain for it to be cleaned. And the score and the sound of the rain hitting the dishes merges together and creates this tinkling kind of beautiful moment. And Stewart and the Janet Lee character even comment on it, how it sounds like music. And then Jimmy Stewart's character pulls the soldier's cup out of the batch because that was the only one making a sour note and ruining the harmony of the rest of these relationships. And it's just a wonderful metaphorical sequence that, again, you don't need it in this movie. If you're just trying to put the butts in the seats and shoot the guns, totally unnecessary. But it'll be a moment that I'll remember from this movie for a really long time because I've almost seen nothing like it in terms of integrating environmental sound with music and the score the way it interacts with it is almost you know modernist and avant-garde in the way that it's merging the classical music with this almost industrial sound created by tin being hit by water and Jimmy Stewart says better than most fiddlers I've heard which you know real knock to the violin playing and fiddle playing community of the American West. At this point, they, they leave the cave and they're deciding whether or not to ford a river at a very tempestuous part of the rapids. And this is where we start to get a couple of plot turns that feel kind of quick in the way that they're brought on. The soldier character here picks a fight with Jimmy Stewart and they go to blows. I will say, even if the motivations for the fight are slightly underdeveloped, the fight itself is uh, you know really well staged. 
there's this dust being kicked up between Jimmy Stewart and the soldier and, you know, rope is being shoved into people's mouth and into their face and fingers are going into eyes. It feels really gritty. And I especially love the fact that man shows a lot of restraint here in not ladling in some score. He lets the grunts and guttural utterances of the characters carry the sound of the scene. And that way, when there is a crack of a gun, it actually feels, you know, violent. Another great tool that he uses to ratchet up the intensity of this fight is cutting to all of the other characters in the scene as Jimmy Stewart and the soldier fight. And we can start to see that they are becoming disturbed and that makes us more disturbed. The second slightly abrupt turn in the plot is when the prospector finally takes up the outlaw character on his promise to lead him to gold. And it seems a bit improbable, but in the middle of the night, him and Janet Lee and the prospector, so the outlaw, Janet Lee and the prospector, roll out and kind of make their way away from everyone else to escape. But of course, the outlaw betrays the prospector and in a really brutal kind of quick scene, he just dispatches of him by this river. And man very pointedly uses this quick whip pan to the right when the death scene is shown, and it's the same pan as we got towards the naked spur at the beginning of the movie. So Ryan's now alone with Janet Lee, and he knocked her off the horse in order to get the drop on the prospector character. And so, you know, she's about had it with this guy over the course of the movie. The two of them perch at the top of this rock, and now we're back again in hard rock instead of the verdant greens and we're back again to the beginning of the movie with Robert Ryan perched over the incoming Jimmy Stewart character except this time we're kind of placed with the Robert Ryan character at first we know that he's there with Janet Lee and just as he's about to aim his gun Janet Lee knocks it out of the way and alerts Jimmy Stewart that they are up there and of course this you know mirrors back to the beginning of the movie where they say, you know, as soon as you look for trouble ahead, it comes behind you, right? Robert Ryan, the last thing he's expecting is for Janet Lee, the woman that he's just exercised his control over and manipulated like a pawn the whole movie. The last thing that he expects is for them to, you know, kind of come from behind and knock his plans out of motion. This is the only scene where Janet Lee's acting to me felt slightly dr overdramatic, where she's trying to convince Robert Ryan not to kill Jimmy Stewart, and then some of the actions after she knocks the gun out of his hand, it just feels a little big. And now we get Jimmy Stewart, you know, scaling the rock, the thing that he couldn't do at the beginning of the movie. The soldier is actually still alive. He's down below, but he's, you know, not really playing a role at this moment. And what I love is that Jimmy Stewart uses his naked spur to notch his way up the side of the cliff. But this time, Robert Ryan knows to look behind him, and he's waiting. And there's this great shot of Jimmy Stewart at the side of the cliff and Robert Ryan coming from the top, and they're about to meet each other. And then Jimmy Stewart throws the naked spur into his throat and you know distracts him, shoots him off the side of the mountain. And so this is the end of the outlaw character, and he falls into the water, and the soldier actually you know goes in after him to try and retrieve the body. He wants that bounty. And he actually gets killed by a tree kind of floating down the river that he uproots in trying to get the body out. And it's wonderfully presaged in one of the previous scenes where we see a huge tree kind of float down the river in the background 
of one of the scenes where kind of Jimmy Stewart is climbing up the, cl the cliff. And it's a quick moment, but it's, again, a wonderful bit of foreshadowing that the movie does to how the soldier is going to die. Another great character beat in this action sequence is that when Jimmy Stewart kills Robert Ryan, he doesn't go for his body. He actually goes over to the Janet Lee character. And even though he's about to say after this that, oh, I, I only want the money, nothing else, we already have seen, again, this kind of physical action that belies even what he says. And what I love about this final sequence with Jimmy Stewart scaling the rocks is that there's no score. It's just the sound of the rapids. And, you know, the rapids are a great metaphor for the fact that all these story currents have kind of come to a head at this point. And man uses that kind of rumbling undercurrent to just create a constant drone of tension for the scene rather than some bombastic score, which we've kind of, you know, seen it almost where it's welcome out at this point in ratcheting up the action scene. So I think it's a really wise choice. And this, this ending is apparently pretty divisive in how romantic it is. But before we get to that, he pulls Robert Ryan out of the water like some dead trout. I mean, it's a great scene, and there's something about it that's really kind of cold in the way that Robert Ryan's body is just kind of flopped onto the side of the shore with this rope around him. But the romanticism comes in when we see Janet Lee's character, you know, stark against this blue sky and the beautiful dreamer theme comes in and they kind of entreat Jimmy Stewart to like put all of this away because Jimmy Stewart wants to get the reward and then bring Janet Lee to his farm. And then she says, you know, bring me to that farm after you've gotten it with the blood of Robert Ryan is like me walking on to a cemetery onto a tombstone and she entreats him to do something differently. I, and again, I can see why this feels like a dramatic turn for Jimmy Stewart's character to do this, but he does decide to bury the body of Robert Ryan right there. And again, I can see the complaints against it, but I actually loved it as a metaphor for the fact that this whole time, Jimmy Stewart again was trying to kind of burn off the part of him or kill the part of him that was just pure nihilism in the reaction of his first wife kind of running away with this other man you know uh, robert ryan represents what it means to just not give a shit about anyone or anything and that is a total streak in the jimmy stewart character that he's able to kind of exercise or excise by the end of the movie in choosing not to go for the reward and just cash in on this person and instead to you know embrace the relationship with janet lee and embrace some kind of humanism so on that kind of metaphorical level i did appreciate the ending i'm curious if anyone has feedback though you know what the general response is out there because i know it's a hard turn for some people so uh big ups to jimmy stewart big ups to the rocky mountains big ups to anthony mann i mean this is just a real banger so now for ratings and rankings. First, I'm going to give this movie a rating, anything from a zero to five star rating. And today I'm going to give this movie a four and a half out of five stars. And I'm going to keep the rating short and sweet today. You heard what I thought about the film. I love it. There's so much to dig into. There are so many more scenes that you could talk about, little pieces of dialogue. It's just a really rich movie for a 90 minute film. So go check it out. In terms of ranking, this was really hard. Um, God, this was really tough. But I'm going to have to still give Canyon Passage the edge on this movie. So we've got two other movies we're ranking it against. And how ranking works, again, is that we rank every single movie 
against all of the other movies that we've covered. So, so far it is Canyon Passage, Massacre Time, and this film. And right now I'm gonna have to give the edge to Canyon Passage. I'm gonna slot this movie in above Massacre Time. I had a lot more thematic heft to it, even if they were both really technically well-made films. And you know, maybe Fulci is even doing a few more adventurous things in the cinematography and in the way that it's shot and edited. This film just had a thematic richness that is gonna give it the edge in my opinion. So right now the list is number one, Canyon Passage, number two, The Naked Spur, and number three, Massacre Time. Feel free to you know comment or let me know if you think that any of these ratings or rankings should be changed. I'm very interested in feedback and will definitely make changes if I hear a convincing argument. And now for recommendations. Every week, we're gonna try and make the connection between Westerns and modern cinema. Even if Westerns are a quote unquote dead genre, the ripples are still flowing out from them in terms of style, in terms of story tropes, and in terms of connections to modern cinema. So let's make one of those connections today by pairing The Naked Spur with a post 2000s movie. And today I'm gonna pair The Naked Spur with You Were Never Really Here, from 2017, directed by Lynn Ramsey and starring Joaquin Phoenix. And I really love that both of these movies, The Naked Spur and You Were Never Really Here, start as kind of simple what seems like uh, revenge stories or, or, you know, a character taking on a mission to track someone down stories. And then they unravel into much, much more than that. So could not recommend this film highly enough. The score by Johnny Greenwood is excellent. And I feel like it kind of slipped through the cracks when it came out in 2017. So definitely check out You Were Never Really Here by Lynn Ramsey. There's a standout action sequence that's all done completely through security cam footage. And man, I just thought it was a wonderful use of cinema. If you have any comments about that film or anything else in the show, feel free to reach me on Twitter at Saddle Up Cinema. On TikTok, look for Saddle Up Cinema. On Instagram, Saddle Up Cinema. And then you can find me on Letterboxd, Neil Anderson with the orange profile pic. And as always, if someone says they can lead you to a gold mine, come on, dude.